Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. Hey everyone, it's Kelsey and Jeff, and we are here to tell you a bit about our partner Anchor. We know that you're a fan of this podcast and maybe you thought, hey, I want to make a podcast too. Well, we have great news for you guys. We want to tell you all about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast for a few reasons, but to start out, it's free. Plus, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Plus, you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Do it, you guys, and enjoy the show. So, um, Doug, nice to see you again. Great to see you, Maria. Uh, I remember I was just telling Stephanie the story of when I first met you, and I heard your voice, and then I did the, like... I always call it the poodle headcock where I just kind of looked to the side. I'm like, I know that voice. (laughs) And then you told me you did the book of joy. You wrote the book of joy. You narrated it. um, And I just was blown away. Like I was like, you were a rock star in my mind in that Mm. moment because that book was so incredible. And I got it at the right time in my life. It was right after surgery. And I just... I needed to hear all of those messages and a lot of them were messages that were already kind of circulating in my mind that were then confirmed which was something that was happening a lot in my recovery um, but it was just so cool and so I've been dying to talk to you about that experience and for all of our listeners who I'm sure have read the book of joy because they're all on this path um, I'm sure they're going to be just as excited as me. Well, thank you so much. I, I I don't actually feel like the rock star. I feel like the warm up band for the rock stars who were the, <laughs> were the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. But it was pretty incredible to just uh, get to be um, with them for a week and to be able to sh- what what made the whole experience, which was kind of ecstatic, you know, kind of manageable and tolerable, was knowing that we could share it with the world, mm-hmm. and that was really pretty awesome otherwise well otherwise i think i just would have imploded um you know i would have and just the fact that you know it was such an extraordinary historic meeting and the fact that you know if it had just been that i got to be there and i couldn't share it it would have felt like such a waste Mm -hmm. um but the fact that we were able to both 
create the book of joy, but also to videotape it with five uh, cameras. And we're actually going to be making a documentary film uh, called Act Like a Holy Man, uh, which is a line from, as you may remember from the book, where Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama are teasing each other at lunch. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, were like a comedy duo throughout the entire week. And, you know, that's one of the things I love is that people laugh their way yes, through the Book of Joy. You know, it's, I did. They were funny. And they're so funny. And, and I think, uh, you know, something like the Dalai Lama was, you know, holding forth and he was teasing him and and... And Archbishop Tutu turned to him and said, act like a holy man. <laughs> and um, it's just, you know, they the whole time they were just teasing each other that way. So mm-hmm. um, we actually have just um, gotten permission to create a film. And Luis C. Hoyos, who may, won the Academy Award for The Cove, is going to actually be directing the film. So in addition to the book, people will be able to really have the experience of being there um, through the footage as well. So cool. I was yeah. going to ask you what was going to happen with all that footage because yeah. I kept in interviews hearing you talk about how you guys filmed it. I'm like, but I haven't seen anything and I forgot right. you had mentioned to me you guys were doing this before. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. So I guess this historic meeting, you're getting to be a part of this and are you just relying on the cameras capturing stuff and then taking from the cameras and watching the footage back? Are you taking notes? How are you soaking this in so that you can create the book of joy for us? Well, that's a great question. And um, well, first of all, what we did was we, um, in addition to, I worked for about six months with the Dalai Lama's translator to come up with the questions um, Mm -hmm. because I had worked with Archbishop Tutu for over uh, a decade at the time. And so we knew where a lot of the most amazing stories and the most and their views and their values and where they converged or where they diverged. And so we came up with all those questions. And then we also went out to the world and gathered thousands of questions that other people had and tried to distill those into the questions that most people wanted to ask. And then um, when we were actually there, I mean, it was hard enough to just kind of facilitate the conversation and keep the conversation going. And one of the things that was so amazing was, I mean, first of all, because neither of these men is brief. (laughs) So we had a week, but we had to get a whole book. You know, we had all of these questions and each man is used to kind of giving a sermon um, or a drosh or darshan, you know, and um, so the hardest part of an interview is like, (laughs) uh, do I cut in? (laughs) And it's like cutting into the Dalai Lama and Desmond too. Not so easy, you know, like, you know, like, uh, and uh, uh, excuse me, excuse me. (laughs) Um, So um, mostly I was just facilitating the conversation and then the cameras were recording and then, we had everything transcribed and then I was able to go back and look at the cameras and also just get the sense of kind of the poignancy of, I mean, it was so profound to see their friendship. You Mm -hmm. know, that was what, one of the things I think we tried to capture in the book of joy, which was so incredible was it wasn't just like a traditional kind of journalistic interview, which is that we were witnessing this extraordinary relationship and this incredible love. Yeah, I get the chills. And I mean, this amazing example of what's possible for all of us when we are together, you know, when we are better together, yeah. um, because they are, there's just this, they've only met half a dozen times, but they, you know, when, what Archbishop Tutu said is, you know, when we were quiet, we discovered that our spirits were kindred. 
And there's just this kind of sense. They call each other their mischievous spiritual brother. Mm -hmm. And you just, you know, they are just on this kind of expressing this incredible unconditional love and also teasing each other mercilessly at the same time. So it's um, so we really wanted to try to communicate that and share that, which fortunately the cameras picked up. So we were able to kind of share that experience as well. Yeah, I think it's so funny. I, I wonder do they let their holiness guard down amongst each other? Like I yeah. know Desmond Tutu got him to dance and yeah. he's not allowed to dance um, technically. So was there something that was happening between the two of them where it's like, okay, listen, I can imagine that, you know, the Dalai Lama has to continue on with the boundaries and be the holiest of holy so that he can be an example for everyone, right? right? Like if you're a yogi, you've got to be a yogi to the highest extent so that you can be followed. But when you're amongst a peer, right. which is so rare for them, exactly. I wonder if they can kind of let their guard down a little bit and it's okay because the rules are just there for the people in a sense. Well, it's a great question. When you're on the go 24 seven, like me guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me from working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials. It's been my go-to for so many years and having everything in one place is such a time saver for me with being a first time mom. For a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus, having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully, our jobs and everything in between. But it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're going to love it. Really, I think that that's what was part of the magic was that you actually were getting to be friends with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu mm -hmm. through their friendship with each other, right? So many of us go to these incredible spiritual masters and, you know, we're there as disciples or students or, um, you know, they have to kind of pronounce, make pronouncements from on high. And really what you got to see was their humanity in a way that yes. you rarely get to see. And the beautiful thing is for two of these two men in particular was that they actually don't want to be on a pedestal. They are incredibly humble and see themselves as just two of the 7 billion people on the planet. And so they're happy to let their guard down. They're, you know, they're constantly trying to you know, break down that barrier between people. So, you know, for example, our sound technician is miking up the Dalai Lama, you know, and the Dalai Lama is pulling on the sound technician Juan's beard and mustache. <laughs> and, you know, as if to say, you know, this incarnation, I'm the Dalai Lama and you're the sound technician. Next incarnation, maybe I'll be the sound technician and you'll be the Dalai Lama. But trying to constantly break down those barriers and, it's very hard because they're, we're constantly putting them on the pedestal. So yeah. when they had that, and, and really that was one of the most amazing things about the week, which we, we really did not anticipate. We knew this was going to be historic. We knew it was going to be inspiring. 
we had no idea how much it would mean to the two of them. And, you know, you know, the, the great world leaders just don't get a lot of time to hang out and have a beer with their buddies. Mm-hmm. And um, just to have that time to be with a peer. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just felt that. And I got emotional. Oh, it's it's really was so profound for them. Yeah. And to know, frankly, that, um, you know, this might. Did be... you just feel it, too? Yeah. Oh, my God. I felt it so hard. and I feel so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we also knew that this might be the last time they would see each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Archbishop Tutu had been sick with prostate cancer, and the doctors weren't letting him leave South Africa. And the Dalai Lama is not allowed to go to South Africa because of pressure from China. um, And because, um, you know, so we knew that we had this little window of bringing them together. And I think that made it all the more poignant that we knew that this was such a a treasured experience and like you know like that you know we take it for granted with our friends and our family and our loved ones you know well there's always going to be more time but knowing in some way that this might be it yeah just added so much to it and a lot more pressure for you (laughs) an enormous amount of pressure and um you can't screw this one up (laughs) you can't screw this one up and i it was really i mean i really um I, i was there the night before the interviews began and I, I woke up at three in the morning and it was as if I had been shaken awake and the Dalai Lama gets up at three in the morning to meditate and I just get up at three o'clock in the morning when my demons get me up and you know the demon that got me up this night was the demon of self-doubt mm-hmm. and I was sitting there like saying who the hell am I what the you know? What am I doing here? When exactly is Anderson Cooper or Oprah Winfrey or Maria Menounos going to show up and do this interview <laughs> so I can sit down? Um, and then I just had this. Um, I remembered something that Archbishop Tutu had once said, where he said, "Sometimes you're the one who's in the room, and it really doesn't matter." what your limitations are mm-hmm. or your insecurities are. You just have to show up and be there to let happen what is meant to happen. Mm-hmm. And when I was able to release that kind of uh, sense of, you know, it was about me in some way, and really I was just there to facilitate what was meant to happen, um, then the week was bliss. Yeah, that's such a... Um powerful moment because I think everybody has self-doubt and as you're saying it I thought of a zillion instances where I was in situations I'm like wait why am I the one here (laughs) like I'm I'm presenting with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and you know all these heavies and me (laughs) and you're like wait well what huh Sean Connery, what what am I doing here? Or the Obama family, I'm sitting down with them, and I'm like, wait, why why me? <laughs> but then it's like, why not me? Right. And why not you? Right. And so you go on this journey with them, and I want to talk all about the things that we learned from the Book of Joy. Um, I was taking down some of the notes because I remember I took down notes at the time. Well, um, I just wanted to add one last thing yeah. that you were just saying about the self-doubt because – Actually, it was really quite sweet when I was talking to Archbishop Tutu before we were going to India. 
and you know he said to me you know uh i'm a little nervous about crossing swords with the dalai lama you know i'm not cerebral you know i'm very instinctual i don't you know i'm not and basically what he was saying is you know here's the dalai lama who's this incredible you know kind of um critical thinker and you know he's very into science and you know has been you know kind of sharpening his intellectual you know uh, perception and sword for his whole life and here is this man who is a nobel peace laureate he's led his country to freedom he has done truly one of the most extraordinary things that any human has done on this planet and he's still nervous yeah. and he still has self-doubt. And it was just such an amazing reminder of, you know, kind of in our own minds, in our own imaginations, we still, you know, are that whatever, that young person who's just kind of like, really me? Mm-hmm. And um, I just think it's kind of extraordinary when we see it even with amazingly accomplished people. Always, always. And such a great example for people to hear and to take in because as i was listening to it i was thinking the same thing like him he's worried (laughs) right we we all have our thing right i would feel the same way i would feel like okay i'm not a thinker like that but i am very instinctual and i am very intuitive and i have my things right but we all have our own things and we should celebrate our own things and no we can't be everything right unless you're beyonce and this is actually coming to (laughs) one one of the profound lessons right yeah beyonce's a little different (laughs) Um, was that actually one of the things that Archbishop Tutu said was our vulnerabilities and our limitations are, are, are reminders that we need one another. Ooh. So if we could do it all ourselves, we wouldn't need each other. But those limitations and those, uh, actually those self-doubts and those uh, fragilities and limitations are exactly what remind us that we are better together. Oh my gosh. Stephanie, write that quote down. (laughs) I don't know why I didn't write that one down, um, but that is amazing. Yeah. Wow. This stuff is all hitting me really hard. I did this most amazing meditation this morning before this, and I was floating, and it was the most unbelievable experience. I was like not even here, and so maybe I'm feeling it because of that even more. But, um, But yeah, we wouldn't need each other. I remember asking my mom years ago, I was doing a lot of work at the children's hospital and seeing little kids pass and it was crushing me. And I was like, mom, like, why, why does God do this? And she's like, Maria, where would we get compassion from? Where would we get empathy from? And I'm like, okay, I really wish it wouldn't didn't have to be like that, but I guess that makes sense. It's kind of seems similar to what he's saying. Well, this is a wonderful segue into some of the teachings I think that you were talking about because the book was really about how do we experience joy in the face of suffering, right? It wasn't like, how do we have joy when, you know, we're at Disney, the, we're at Disney <laughs> you know, the latte is perfect. You know, the song is playing, the chocolate cake is delicious. You know, it's really, how do we experience joy in the face of the inevitable suffering that we experience in our own lives and that ex- exists in our world. And that's what I think made the, conversation so profound and, and really where they have their deepest teaching to show us that it's not about don't worry be happy and some kind of denial of the challenges the illness the death um, the heartache the heartbreak um, 
but that we can experience all of that and still find our way to joy. That was one of the things I had written down here. Um, well, there were many about that same subject, but shifting our perspective, we can avoid suffering and worry. Mm-hmm. Um, all tragedies have a few perspectives and positives. All good comes from some degree of suffering. Mm. So if you can expand on that a little bit from what they taught you. Well, one of the interesting things, so we didn't quite realize this going in, but they gave us eight pillars of joy, um, really eight you know, they said that if you run after joy and happiness, right? Like we think, you know, the, it's in our declaration of independence, the pursuit of happiness, right? That actually the goal is to run, you know, chase after happiness. And certainly in my own experience, having grown up in a household where there was depression, I thought, you know, my job was to run away from sorrow and run after happiness. And, but what they told us was that, Chasing after happiness and joy were the fastest way to miss the bus. That basically you can't do that. What you actually can do is cultivate these eight pillars of joy that allow you to experience more joy in your life. And the first pillar that they told us where everything begins is perspective. So if you are just focused on the heartache and heartbreak of your life. And I mean, obviously, how often is this the case where, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of our problem becomes everything in our life or, you know, we're, you know, ruminating and chattering away about, you know, the kind of the thing that somebody said to us or the deadline that we're facing or, you know, our child who's sick or whatever it is that is causing us to suffer. And that becomes our world. And so what they said was, if you are able to kind of literally kind of step back in your mind and recognize that this is only a part of your life, it's only a, you know, it's only a part of your, um, both in terms of the extent of what's happening and also in terms of the time that it's, you know, that this will, you know, the old biblical expression, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. You know, when, if you're able to have that kind of All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past. But as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. Come to that larger perspective um, and this is where even the larger perspective of kind of recognizing that we're one person in the seven billion, right? And that one of the things, and I think that a lot of people, and I, you know, like who have faced illness, like you have, recognizes actually when they recognize that it's not just their illness or their suffering, that they're one of many people who are confronting this um, life-changing experience. It gives a perspective that shifts it away from a lot of 
kind of self um, obsession mm -hmm. and allows us to see that it doesn't mean that the heartache and the heartbreak and the pain and the trauma don't go, you know, just disappear, but they find their proper place mm -hmm. and that perspective. And, and one of the things, the really interesting things that the Dalai Lama said is that um, adversities can become great opportunities, you know, and, you know, that's kind of, I think, you know, so many people who have faced challenges or illness often say that mm -hmm. you know, I never would have this life if I yeah. had. And, you know, we, we're working with a, a physician at Harvard who studies spontaneous remission. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, if, you're, if you don't stop, your body will stop you. And, you know, but many people who experience illness then say, if that hadn't happened, I never would have stopped. I never would have had, you know, that clarification of, and that new perspective on my life mm -hmm. and on my relationships. And so I think that's what the Dalai Lama means when he says that adversities can become great opportunities. Yeah, that's why I was connecting so much to it, because I had identified my tumor as a gift. Yeah. And I knew that it was supposed to come for me to change my life. Mm. And I wouldn't have. I would have just run myself into the ground, which I, in, in essence, did. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, but without it, I wouldn't have. Mm. And so I think that what they're saying is, is so true, that all good comes from something bad. And I had been saying it. So when I listened to this, it rang so true to me. And it's, you know, it is really the, <clears throat> the light in the shadows, which is not to say, you know, kind of you, we click our heels together and say, you know, it's all wonderful. No, for you know, sure. We, we deal with the suffering. Um, you know, we face the suffering, our own, and, and hopefully the suffering of others. But when, and actually the more we are able to kind of have this perspective and confront our own pain and suffering, the more we can be available to actually heal and, and help others. Mm -hmm. Well, also, I think that the things that are, are paining us and are obstacles in a sense mm. are there because we need to learn some lesson. Yeah. So even, you know, um, with my mom right now, the cancer has been at bay and she's doing amazing. And mm. someone with glioblastoma coming up on three years, it's a small miracle. That is amazing. But the caretaking is really difficult and it's really taxing and it's really painful. And every time I get really frustrated, I realize I'm like, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to be learning? There's a reason this is happening. There's a reason this is still smashing in my face. And so I'm dissecting it and I'm starting to realize, oh, there's another lesson here I haven't been finding that I have not been paying attention to, that I've been ignoring, that I haven't wanted to hear. And so I think if you look at things like that, um, they're all lessons, even the most painful things. Well, you're, you're reminding me of one of the most profound things that Archbishop Tutu ever said to me, which was <clears throat> how we make suffering ennobling and not embittering. Mm. Right? So when trauma happens or suffering or illness, ours or others, you know, we, you know it's very possible that it, we can become angry and bitter about it and why me and why did this happen and and um and what is it that causes some people to get bitter where others are what he calls ennobled by it meaning that they 
become, they grow and learn and develop. And it is, as you're describing, part of their development mm-hmm. as, a, as a person, as a, as a soul. And what he said is there are, there are two things that you need to do that, that make the difference, basically. You find meaning in the suffering. You make meaning out of the suffering. And primarily you do that by helping others with it. So whatever it is that you're facing, if you can find some kind of lesson as you're talking about or some kind of uh, making it meaningful, it's not just random. It's not just like, well, life sucks and, you know, um, and people die, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that sometimes life doesn't <laughs> suck and, and people do die. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can find a way to find meaning you know in that adversity and then take that experience and use it to help others and then um, it it becomes ennobling yeah absolutely I think um, I think there are so many things that can be done I mean even for me I know that because I'm a communicator Mm -hmm. I can communicate the lessons I'm learning or I can help people find those lessons and everybody has something to offer from these experiences, whether it's to the masses or to a few. Right, um, right. So, okay, so that was the first pillar. <laughs> Let's go through the others. Yeah. Well, so there, I'll, I'll give you a quick overview, and we can stop along the way mm-hmm. any ways you want to. But um, So there are four pillars of the mind, which are perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance. Um, and then four pillars of the heart, which are forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. And so the ways these relate to one another, in, they relate to one another in an interesting way, because when we have that proper perspective that we talked about, then we also have a proper perspective on ourselves, and we do realize that we're one of the seven billion people on the planet, you know, no better or no worse than anyone else. And so that leads to this kind of natural humility and from that humility, we're actually able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at our lives, and that's humor. And that's what they're doing. I mean, they're just doing, you know, they're, they're, they're teasing each other, they're teasing themselves. And, I, you know, I said to Archbishop Tutu, you, you know, your, your humor is not, like, you know, it's not a cutting humor. It's not putting anybody down. And he says, yeah, it's kind of like stand next to me and we'll laugh at me and then we'll laugh at you, you know? <laughs> and um, it's really just, you know, laughing at... The, 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 that it is hilarious being human, you know, mm-hmm. like being alive, being human, you know, like, like just, it's a, it's, it's a funny reality. And, you know, like I once worked with a shaman who said, you know, basically you can laugh or you can cry. They're kind of the same thing, but laughing just feels better, you know? And I think that ability to laugh at ourselves is a really fundamental way in which we kind of almost viscerally kind of loosen our, are, are suffering in our body mm-hmm. and are able to experience more joy. So from, and from humor, once we're able to kind of laugh at ourselves. Actually, can, before yeah, you go, go on from yeah. that, I wonder, are they also saying that we're kind of insignificant when you really think about it, but also <laughs> can be significant, Yeah. right? So if you think about the fact that we're one of 7 billion, we're right. just ants, uh-huh. right? But... We could be a powerful ant while yeah. we're here, but otherwise we're making so 
many molehills. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Out of things. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a uh, really true. I mean, I, it's like it's this. I think it's no better or no worse than anybody else. It's not like we're 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 not so significant and we're not insignificant. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's this incredible paradox where. We matter enormously and we don't matter. Exactly. Right. So it's like you can't make things so big. Right. Like it's only you. I mean, that's so ego-centered. Right. Right? Um, and th- there's this – one of my favorite uh, sentences that Archbishop Tutu said during our week together was, you will be surprised by the joy when you go beyond your own self-regard. And I think that self-regard, that self-preoccupation that is so um, – so inevitable in just the fact, first of all, that we see the world from our own perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of how we evolved um, uh, for independent locomotion <laughs> and that we see everything through our own eyes. But it's also that we, it's in, especially in this modern world, and it's all about me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the, the science is really interesting because they brought the science and um, they asked me to bring the science to what they were saying. And one of the things that the science shows is actually you're much more likely to have a heart attack if you use the words I, me, and mine. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's Frizi Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. A lot. Whoa. Yeah. It's like this incredible research. Uh, I think the researcher was at UCLA who was studying kind of, you know, heart attack um, patients. And that kind of self-preoccupation is one of the things that is actually very unhealthy. And so what Archbishop Tutu is saying is not only is it unhealthy, it's actually going beyond that. You know, kind of, and if you, we think about it in our own experience, you know, when we're ruminating on ourselves mm-hmm. and we're kind of, you know, preoccupied with our, ourselves, it's typically not where joy comes from. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I was thinking about what the difference is because we talk a lot about like self care and well being and all mm-hmm. of that here. And when they say when we're focused on ourselves, we're, we, um, will tend to be unhappy. Yeah. Right. That was one of the things they talked about in there. How do you balance that line of loving yourself? Yeah. Without loving yourself. Right. Well, you know, I think that, um, this is a really important point. And actually I think there's a gender component of this too, right? I do too. You've got to remember Um, these are mm -hmm. two men in their eighties, right? And I think actually, um, for women are often, educated to really think about others first Mm -hmm. and often don't 
take care of themselves, right? Exactly. So I think they're not saying don't do that. They're not saying um, – but I think what they're saying is that, you know – Honoring yourself, listening to yourself, taking care of yourself is important. But that, you know, ultimately our greatest joy is not about a spa day. You know, our, our greatest joy is actually when we turn to others and are in relationship with others, which is really what, you know, if we go on that spa day with our friends, you know, like, yeah. um, if we, you know, if we're there and we're, but we really, what we want is actually to bring joy to other people. That was kind of mm -hmm. one of the, basic punchlines of what they said was that it's, you know, the fastest way to, to experience more joy in your own life is to bring joy to other people, which, so I think that that is, so I think, you know, like everything in our society, it's very easy to kind of take it to extreme or to commodify it or say, well, if I just buy more stuff for myself or, you know, more creams or go to spa days or, you know, get a massage, then I'm going to be more, you know, then, then that's the way to self-love. Um, and what I think they're saying is actually loving yourself and loving others are like this, this are inseparable. And that actually the more we, you know, and I think this is actually where, you know, that doesn't mean self-sacrificing, right? It doesn't mean exhausting mm -hmm. ourselves to the point where we're not honoring our own truth or our own needs. Um, that's where I think that um, the message of self-care is really important. Or helping people that are hurting you. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Save, trying to save people that can't be saved. Right, exactly. Um, okay, that, that was definitely one of the questions I wanted to get clarification on. Um, okay, so the other pillars. Yes. We'll stick with the, the first section. <laughs> sure. Um, so the... Um, humor. We get past humor. <clears throat> so we get back... I, I just so important. I, so important. And I just loved that, you know, that was one of their pillars of joy. Yeah. Well, we have a saying in our house that comedy <laughs> must rule. So we <laughs> we took it to extreme. Well, I did with the tumor and I cracked jokes all mm -hmm. the way through. And my best friend still gets upset with me. She's like, I can't believe you did that still. But <laughs> to me, it's the best way to go through things. Oh, so and different. if yeah. you can bring humor in, it makes the journey so much easier. I look back and unless <laughs> I watch a video, Doug, I don't realize how in pain I was. Wow. Unless I actually watch a video. Mm. I was like, oh, that was easy. That was nothing. But it wasn't. But that's what my, my feeling and my recollection of it is because I went through it with humor. Yeah. It's, and I think the humor is so healing and the humor is uh, so vital and important. Um, and when we are able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at our lives um, in the way you were describing, we come to something that they, the pillar that they called acceptance, which is just accepting the reality of what is. And, you know, it was interesting because um, that the chapter is called Acceptance, um, the only place from which real change can occur, right? We often think of ac acceptance as acquiescence or, you know, I'm just, you know, putting up with, you know, what's bad or what's hard or oppression or suffering. But what they told us is, you know, you have to actually see what's true and what is. You have to accept the problem before you can solve the problem. You know, actually, design designers have this same view. Like, it's design thinking. Like, you have to accept a problem before you can solve a problem. And so they reminded us that that, that ability to accept the reality of what is true in our life 
and what is true in the world, that's the place from which we can actually make real change. So that was the fourth pillar of the mind. Is acceptance kind of yeah. like surrendering? So it's, it's interesting because I think <clears throat> it's so easy for people to hear surrendering as acquiescence, right? Like I'm giving up, mm -hmm. you know, now, yeah, now I, I think spiritual, uh, you know, people who believe, you know, who have uh, a belief in God, which obviously one of these men do and one of these men don't, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> then that surrendering to something greater than yourself, mm -hmm. um, then, yeah, in many cases, I think that's a kind of acceptance of the reality of, of life, <clears throat> excuse me, and whether you think of it as you know, acceptance of, you know, surrendering to, you know, a higher power or surrendering to the reality of, you know, that, that we are limited and one, you know, one of the 7 billion people who need to solve our problems on this planet. Um, it's really, it is an ability to go, to recognize that, to not deny the truth of what is. And I think so much of the time we are in denial or we want it to be other than it is. Or we're, um, so we're not really facing reality mm -hmm. squarely. Um, and, and then they said that once you have acceptance, then you also can move into forgiveness, which is, and if you accept the reality of what is now, you can, ex you can forgive what wasn't. You can forgive those in your life who may have harmed you, who have, you know, who maybe weren't the best parents or partners or whatever, you know, it is that uh, who, those who have harmed you. And they were adamant about how important forgiveness was. Actually, when we were talking about forgiveness, it was the only time in the week that I thought the Dalai Lama might slap me, that um, the, the most compassionate man in the world might actually reach out and, you know, Why? What <laughs> and happened? crack me across the face. Um, because, you know, I, I, you know, I said to him, you know, what do you say to people? Um, I, I was using that wonderful uh, interviewing technique where I didn't say it. I was saying, uh -huh. you know, like other people might say that yes, yes. forgiveness is weakness, right? Because a lot of people do feel like if I forgive them, I'm being, it's weak. I should, you know, I'm letting them off the hook and, you know, the, the Dalai Lama, you know, kind of with these, with his hand doing these karate chops was like, for that is, you know, wrong a hundred percent, 1000%, you know, and I could feel each one of those karate chops, you know, from, you know, from, uh, across the, you know, <laughs> the, the little interview space. Um, but what they were saying, you know, and, and then Archbishop Tutu kind of came in and, and, you know, and, and the Dalai Lama then said, no, uh, forgiveness is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. And then Archbishop Tutu in this very sweet way kind of perked up and said, well, you know, people who say that forgiveness is a sign of weakness haven't tried it, you know, and it was just like, uh, yeah, forgiveness is really hard. And it takes an enormous amount of strength. But what they were saying is, you know, forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not, um, you know, letting people can, you know, continue to do you harm, but it is unshackling yourself from them, yeah. those who have harmed us. Right. And it's unshackling ourselves from the past so that we can actually really be uh, fully present in our life and move forward into our future. So that's why they were saying forgiveness was yeah, I think that's such an important topic because I think we all have so many people to forgive in our lives. Yeah. And 
for me, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, forgive, but don't forget. And how do you, how do you walk the line of forgiving someone who's done something horrible and not letting them back into your life? Like, can you forgive from afar Mm. and keep people at that distance and say, I forgive you. Yeah. I, I understand that you didn't know any better and whatever happened, blah, blah, blah. And then continue to have your boundary. Is that still forgiveness? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, and so we did a, the book of forgiving with Archbishop Tutu as well. Which, As a first-time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. (laughs) Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, They keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. It's an amazing book for anyone who is, um, you know, challenged by this topic or, or trying to find forgiveness. And he describes this fourfold path of forgiveness. And, um, you know, the, the final, uh, step is renewing or releasing the relationship, right? So you, you know, forgiving doesn't mean, okay, you got to, you know, you know, welcome them back into your life with open arms and, and embrace. Um, there are people who are not good for us, mm-hmm. um, or good to have in our life or are not trustworthy. Um, and I think that ability to, go into, you know, to forgive them and release them can be really powerful. So I'm getting a question from the booth, which I appreciate, by the way, guys. They want to know, does forgiveness need to be communicated to the other party? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, There is, in the the fourfold path of forgiveness that that Archbishop Tutu talks about— um, there is a you know a, a process of naming the hurt, and 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 stating your truth right? to so, them to them, um, so that you give them the opportunity to um, tell their side. Yeah, to tell their side or to you know actually uh, apologize or to heal the relationship, right? Um, so, and but n- that's not always possible, right? Not, you know, people aren't always, you know, I mean, willing to or able to take responsibility or even, I mean, and, and that is, you know, the, you know, that's where compassion often comes in, in that we also realize that there, you know, that we had a role in it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes, you know, pain and, and suffering are co-creations. Um, so, um, so he, you know, I think the, you know, one of the things we, we research, every culture has a form, an understanding of revenge, and every culture has a, an understanding of forgiveness. And there, the way Archbishop Tutu described it is, it's like you are choosing to 
relinquish your right to revenge. That's what forgiveness is. Ooh, I like that. So you're actually saying, I am not, you know, and the revenge cycle, obviously, we know where that leads, mm -hmm. right? So and, Even the revenge of the mind, exactly, right? And the yeah. spirit. Exactly. And so even if you're not literally taking revenge on them. It's that holding of the negativity. Exactly. And, and often, you know, like people say, and, and Archbishop Tutu says, you know, like, you know, being holding resentment and be, holding unforgiveness is like drinking a poison and hoping that somebody else is going to die. <laughs> you know, I remember um, that. Um, and so, you know, that ability to actually like it's it, and actually the physiology of unforgiveness is quite amazing. How we, you know the scientists have found you know that that kind of bitterness and holding on to that unforgiveness can really be toxic for your body. So that ability to release that and come to forgiveness, um, it both kind of heals yourself and it also, you know, heals the social fabric, which is why it exists different from, you know, and, and is the kind of antidote to revenge. Mm -hmm. Guys, did you get your answer? Anything, any follow up on that? I thought it was really cool because I think like when you think about revenge as this thing that you have to do and it's kind of like a responsibility that you're supposed to do, it it just reminds me of the quote of like unfinished business is just work hanging above your head mm. where you know how you feel when you don't get your work done, you have that like looming shadow above you and I guess just having this concept of revenge constantly weighing on you for the rest of your life is mm -hmm. kind of the same concept and forgiving people relieves you of that. Yeah. Yeah. I also am thinking about the idea, you know, when you believe in God and you're very, you know, faith-based, mm -hmm. there's the notion that you have to be the better person. Mm -hmm. And there's the notion that you have to be the better person, accept them back into your life, even if they've harmed you. Um, what would they say to that? Well, uh, being spiritual. I mean, at yeah. least Desmond Tutu, who believes in God. and Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think they wouldn't say that you need to, uh, you know, invite the person back into your life. You know, like being spiritual um, or being, you know, what the Dalai Lama would describe as, you know, being more enlightened or more spiritually developed um, is not um, doesn't require that you do something that's, you know, harmful to yourself. And if this person isn't good to have in your life for whatever reason. Now, that being said, I think, you know, there are a lot of times where we write people off and we say, you know, they're irredeemable or mm -hmm. I'm never going to have a relationship, you know, um, uh, with that person again. And, you know, there are times where, you know, like there is something different about coming to a different healing and relationship um, with somebody versus doing it kind of on your own or in your head. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there are pros, you know, there are, you have to look every, at each relationship and decide what is called for in, in the circumstance. But I think that that point of like, yeah, the sense that, you know, kind of unforgiveness or seeking revenge, or, you know, explicitly or, or implicitly holding on to it, you know, I, I think it's so interesting because, you know, Archbishop Tutu says it's nat our natural response is when we are hit, we want to hit back. Mm -hmm. And so really what forgiveness is about is saying, yeah, yeah I, I have that right, actually, to hit you back. 
that is, you know, kind of, you know, eye for an eye kind of, mm-hmm. you know. Didn't they say it'll leave the world blind? Right, exactly. But I am choosing not to do that um, because I am I'm choosing something else for myself, for our relationship, for the, for the community. Um, because otherwise, yeah, you do end up in the cycle of revenge, which, you know, you kind of think about mafia, fam- you know, families or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of it the, just never ends. The, the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, like, yeah, you know, every, you know, it goes on. And, and that unforgiveness can be passed on for generations and generations and can poison, you know, the, you know our children. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I use the Rocky quote. It ain't yeah. about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, <laughs> how much you can take. So everybody yeah. that's harmed me, yeah. I'm like, okay. You, your first instinct is like, okay, I could I could do so much worse back to you right? because you're a horrible person. And then you're like, okay, but why am I going to waste my efforts going that way when I want to go forward? Yeah. And so you you move on, and then the next person does their thing, and then the next person does their thing. You just keep going. Well, just to give, to bring this back to um, uh, make it personal for a second. So mm-hmm. uh, on my way down to Los Angeles, um, my wife and I got in, into an argument. And um, she said something that was not super kind. Um, I, it's usually me who can can say things like that that I then regret. Uh, but in this case, she did. And, you know, my first response was either to withdraw or to escalate. And then I, you know, the, the thought occurred to me, and this is maybe how we know some of the Book of Joy teachings are working a little bit, mm-hmm. um, was, you know, wow, she must have been in a lot of pain mm-hmm. to say what she said. Yeah. I wonder what that pain is about. And to get curious about the pain instead of getting kind of fixated on the anger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in my life, I've watched those patterns too. Yeah. And you're like, okay, they're they're coming from this place. This is what's happened to them, and this is their pain. And what's funny is when you don't seek revenge and you keep moving forward, those people get worked out Mm. in a way, and you keep climbing and going forward. And so... I've seen the success of it. Not that I'm a vengeful person that would have taken revenge <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. But as I look back, um, I start to see the pattern. You're like, oh, yeah, it all worked out for me anyway. So, <laughs> Somebody else took the revenge. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Life took the revenge. <laughs> Sometimes you sit back and you're like, oh, I hope somebody yeah. does. <laughs> but, That's um, so human. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so, okay. So we've gotten through... The first four. Yes. And then forgiveness we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so then from forgiveness, um, then once we release the past um, and the hope of a better past, we can actually move into gratitude for the reality of the past we did have and the present that we do have. Um, And that sense of gratitude is enormously important for joy uh, and well-being in our life. Uh, That sense... Gratitude is is kind of like um, it's the savoring of life. It's the ability to kind of uh, taste life twice almost mm-hmm. because you're really that sense of gratitude um, is you are able to just really, um, it, it, you know, it's kind of it's that kind of enjoyment. But, you know, whether that's gratitude for, you know, kind of the pleasures of our life or the relationships in our lives um, or just all the blessings in our lives. 
that sense of gratitude is important. And the, the science talks about how important gratitude is as well. So that was one of the pillars that the science said was absolutely. Tell us about the science. Yeah, just that gratitude is, um, you know, what they find. Um, Sonia Lubomirsky, who's a researcher at uh, UC Riverside, um, the three things that she found that in her research, uh, she said about 50% of our of our ability to experience happiness and joy is a kind of temperamental set point, right? So it's kind of like some people wake up in the morning and, you know, it's like going to be a great day. And other people are like, you know, another effing day, you know? (laughs) Um, And so some of it is kind of temperamental, but the other 50% is under, you know, we have influence over. And the things that she said were crucial was the ability to reframe negative experiences into more positive experiences which um, basically is perspective, Mm -hmm. right? It's ability to, you know, it's some of the, those pillars that we were talking about, about how to kind of see things in a different light, seeing those adversities as opportunities. Yeah. Or like life is happening for me, not to me. That has been my mantra. Exactly. Yeah. And then she also found that um, gratitude was the second, that basically that, you know, that habit, you know, it's almost like an uh, a, a habit that you develop of being able to have gratitude and be grateful and focus on the gratitude, right? So if you're focusing on the positive, you're also often focusing on the, you know, being grateful for that positivity as opposed to resenting or feeling like a victim of the negative. And then the <clears throat> third thing she found, which was actually uh, the next two pillars, uh, which she, um, found were kind she said kindness and generosity they would say compassion and generosity and they said compassion is so important that they actually um we almost thought we were going to have to call the book the book of compassion because they said that compassion is so fundamental to any sense of lasting joy and remember what we were in it for was not to just kind of figure out you know how do you in- Enjoy chocolate cake more, mm-hmm. right? We're like, how do you have the kind of lasting joy that these two men have, right? And so how do you take something that most of us experience as a fleeting uh, emotional state, like I'm feeling joy and now I'm feeling sadness and mm-hmm. now, you know, and how do you actually take that joy and actually make it into more of a character trait? Yeah, like consistent. Right. Now, and the thing to say also, which is really important that we that they talked about, and, and what's part of what I learned in the process of writing this book is that all of our emotional states are important. They all evolve for a reason. So we basically have four fundamental human emotions: we have fear, anger, sadness, and joy. Those are the four notes on the keyboard of human emotional life. Yeah, all negative except for one. <laughs> right, right. So we often call, you know, sadness, uh, anger, and um, fear negative states, or they would mm-hmm. say afflictive states in Buddhism. Um, and they are, you know, we spend a lot of time there, and they can be really challenging. Um, they evolved for reasons, right? They evolved because they are actually helping us. Those three negative emotions, one way to think about them is that they are there to get us to do something different than we are doing, mm-hmm. right? So joy is kind of the baseline. It's like the contentment, you know, but then 
Um, I'm, you know, if we didn't have the fear, you know, as Archbishop Tutu said, when the lion comes around, we wouldn't, you know, be here very long, mm-hmm. right? It's just when the fear becomes anxiety and it becomes, you know, perpetual and it becomes constant, that's when it becomes problematic, when we dwell there. Um, similarly, which ang- the new word for fear is really stress. Stress, right? Exactly. Or yeah, when that I'm stress, exactly. it's really I'm fearful. Right. Exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. And I think so. When we live there, that's the problem. And and even they talk about two different kinds of stress. Actually, there is challenge stress and toxic stress. So challenge stress is like, oh my God, I'm going to be doing an interview with Maria Menounos. I'm getting, I'm going to, you know, there's a little fear that comes up, but it's going to, and a little stress, but it's going to get me ready for the interview. That's Mm -hmm. challenge stress. Toxic stress is, oh my God, I can never do this interview. (laughs) It's going to go totally south. That's where it becomes problematic. Um, But so the, but fear evolved for that reason that is, it's really valuable. Similarly, anger, we, you know, what the scientist will tell you is anger is actually a boundary setting emotion, right? It's saying somehow I or others need protection. And that's where the anger comes up because my, you know, I am afraid. So that's why people You've often say, the boundary. They, they, people often say, yes, exactly. Anger is this kind of secondary emotion to fear because something you're afraid of something, the, the, the safety of your child, your safety, and whether that's physical or emotional. And then anger comes up as a way of setting that boundary and, and causing somebody to back off. Similarly, sadness, right? So this was really interesting, right? We think of joy and sorrow are often these opposites. And Sadness and sorrow is this emotion that allows us to call other people to us. If you think about mm-hmm. tears, tears are what bring people to us. You know, if you think about grief, you know, grieving is, you know, where we come together as a community to, to support people who are, have experienced loss or grieving. Um, and sadness is that natural emotion that call, calls people. Us. And so one of the things they said was that, you know, the goal is not to run, which is what I thought going into this was to run away from the sorrow and run towards the joy. It's actually to recognize that those two things are inextricably linked. And actually, they said that the more you are able to experience your sorrow, the more you're able to experience your joy. So it's this fascinating thing, which is, it's almost like a, a knob on, the volume knob on um, a stereo, mm-hmm. you know, where you can turn down the volume on your life through drugs or denial or alcohol or work or whatever your distraction is and feel less of the pain, but you also feel less of the joy as well. Or you can turn up the volume, and as Archbishop Tutu says, you will laugh more, but you will also cry more. So that is why shifting perspective is so important, mm. and and seeing these other emotions as positives, or that they can be positives, and and that they have their role. You know, yeah. so I think you know a lot of people who are on the you know the self improvement spiritual path of some sort kind of want to do kind of spiritual bypass and they want to kind of, you know, leapfrog over those negative emotions Mm -hmm. or, you know, or just say, well, let's just make it all joyful or let's make it all good. And, you know, I, 
have been, you know, known at times in my life to be a little bit of a joy Nazi in that regard too. And that's really not what they're saying. They're not, you know, and I think, you know, what, what was one of the really interesting things that people ask is, you know, what is, where did they disagree? Yeah, that's on my list. And, um, <laughs> you know, so. And where are their biggest differences? Like, a, yeah. And this was one of them. So, you know, the Dalai Lama actually said that we can develop something called mental immunity. And that's mm -hmm. through the kind of meditative practices that you were just describing earlier, or that we give like 50 pages of their joy practices in the back of the book. And, you know, with enough kind of discipline and practice, you can develop a kind of mental immunity, which like physical immunity prevents you from having these negative emotions as much. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, which but, is a good thing, which is a very good thing. Um, and, you know, Archbishop Tutu was just cautious in saying, well, yes, you know, you might be able to experience fear, anger, and sadness less, but because you're human, you are going to feel those emotions. So right? at that point, did you say, fight, fight, fight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hand them their swords. Yeah. Go at it too, you too. More World uh, Wrestling Federation. Yes. You know, um, so, um, but it was, you know, it was really what he was concerned about in his wonderful way was not adding shame to those yeah. human e emotions, right? So when you are in, a, in uh, experiencing fear or sadness or anger, not then saying, you know, I'm a terrible person because I'm doing this, you know, or if only I had more mental immunity. Um, and so what was interesting was I think ultimately we realized that they're talking about different points on the cycle, mm -hmm. right? Where they, what they're saying aligns, it's just they're focusing on different points. The Dalai Lama is saying, okay, this yeah, is where you end up. Yeah. And, he, and he's also saying, actually, do your, you know, if you kind of go to the, the, the mental gym and do your practices, you're going to be healthier and less likely to get sick, mm -hmm. you know, or less likely to have these negative experiences. Or have like some of the smaller things hit you as hard. Exactly. Exactly. So you're, you're going to be more resilient. You're going to mm -hmm. be healthier. You're going to be, you know, more in, in mind and body. And I, the, you know, Archbishop Tutu was saying, yes, well, that's true. If you live a healthy life mentally, you're going to less often fall into fear, anger, and sadness. But you know, it's just like when you get a cold, you know, even if you live a healthy life, you're going to get a cold. Yeah. Right. And so you're, you know, and, and not to be like, ah, what's wrong with me that my, you know, my, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not taking enough vitamin C or mm -hmm. I'm not going to the gym enough, you know, and just recognizing that's what bodies do. That's what minds do. Minds do go to fear, anger, and sadness quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, but what happens, I think, with the joy practices and as Archbishop Tutu says, you know, and, you know, once you have been refined, you know, like it takes time, he says, to learn to be human. But as you develop these capacities and these perspectives and cultivate the eight pillars, then you're just, you don't, you don't set up shop in fear, anger, and sadness. You know, they kind of arise, you notice them, you're aware of them, and you can, you can migrate through them more quickly. So the argument with your wife that would have lasted, you know, a week mm -hmm. becomes, you know, an hour or a half hour or five minutes, you know, it just becomes, you know, you get to transition more quickly through those states and recognize that you ultimately want um, 
well-being for those others as well and that it's not personal in mm-hmm. some way that you know it's not i mean i think that's one of the places we fall you know we trip up so often is you know how is why is that person doing this to me mm-hmm. as opposed to just realizing that this person is just being the doing this person and then i'm having a reaction to what they're doing that's about my own growth and work yeah and that's that's to you rachel i'm saying that to you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i mean i call it shifting yeah so i've learned to shift pretty quickly out of these negative things that occur but then there's always those few triggers that are really difficult like the childhood triggers that are hard to get through that get me and then it takes me like a week and i'm like wait wait where are my practices how come i haven't employed any of the tools but so i i see where both of them are right with that i wonder you must be familiar with esther hicks work right um i i've heard of her work i i don't know it very well oh okay well i guess it doesn't matter we'll move on from it because there was there was something there's stuff that she says um, that kind of goes along with what they're saying, but is a little contradictory too. So, but we'll move on from it. Cause if you don't know it, then it doesn't make sense. Sure. That's a good edit point right there, Stephen. Um, uh, okay. Keep on going with the pillars. So, uh, really we're kind of at the culmination, which is compassion and generosity. Mm-hmm. And, um, compassion is that turning beyond ourselves outward toward others, um, which is that place which brings us so much joy and generosity is the enactment of that. So it's actually, um, you know, and it doesn't just mean, you know, we often think of generosity as money, Mm -hmm. but it's really a kind of generosity of the spirit, which they talked about, which is, um, you know, which is actually the encapsulation of the other pillars, right? It's all eight pillars together, which is this kind of generosity of spirit, which is what they have, which is, this incredible sense of really like, um, I mean, kind of giving our best to one another, right? Giving, you know, this, you know, this sense, you know, we often think of generosity of the spirit is kind of like, you know, assuming the best of others, right? Assuming that, um, you know, their best intentions. um, And which, you know, again, does not mean that we're not, you know, we don't recognize where the people have, where people fall down and that, you know, we have to be mindful of who's trustworthy and who's not trustworthy. But this kind of generosity of the spirit is what you see in these two men, right? That what makes them so luminous is that their kind of spiritual practices radiate out into this incredible loving kindness and generosity of time and attention and concern. And I think one of the things that makes them so amazing is that they're not a Christian leader and a Buddhist leader. They're these two kind of global figures who care only about humanity as a whole. I'll give you a kind of amazing example of this generosity of the spirit and compassion. This story that the, the Dalai Lama, you know, we asked him, you know, like, how do you forgive China for invading Tibet and occupying Tibet, and basically annexing Tibet and basically making his life really hard. And continues to. And continues to. And oppressing 
the Tibetan people and, you know, pressing their education and their language. And, and, you know, what he said was, he said, I can have compassion for the negative consequences and the karma that these Mm -hmm. Chinese officials are creating. And I think that, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, it's like, you know, that kind of amazing perspective shift, right? That these people who are, you know, oppressing you. I mean, there was one story he told as well about this, the night that he fled from um, Tibet when the Chinese were, uh, had invaded and he was afraid of a kind of bloodbath happening. And he fled that night disguised and he told us this incredible story about kind of fleeing and the fear that he was experiencing and the Chinese artillery and everything. And there was a, a monk who was um, arrested that night, and taken to a Chinese gulag and tortured for 18 years. And he said it was so, they didn't have shoes there. It was so cold that when you spit, your spit froze. Mm. And that people were so hungry that they were reduced to kind of eating the dead dead bodies, but they were so frozen that they couldn't, right? So this is what, like, he was describing, you know, and and then finally he was released and he was telling the Dalai Lama this story. And he said, during those 18 years, there were some dangers, and the, you think? And the, yeah, you think? And the Dalai Lama is like, and I'm thinking, yes, there are dangers. You almost died, you know, doubt. And he said, and the the man said, there were d- dangers that I would lose my compassion for my guards who were torturing me. I know it seems kind of superhuman, doesn't it? But you know that compassion for the guards who were torturing me. I know, unbelievable. You Whoa! Know, I know we kind have a lot of uh, a lot of <laughs> growing to, do <laughs> to get to that. I know, just amazing, yeah. And so I think you know that um, you know it was funny when during the week they were teasing each other, uh, like who was going to heaven and who was going to hell, and um, you know the Dalai Lama would say, "Well, you know you're going to heaven, you know, so maybe, but because I don't, because I'm an infidel, I don't believe in God. Maybe I can hold on to your skirts. You can get me in, you know." And um, hilarious is really funny, right? Exactly. And and then um, at one point in the dialogue, the Dalai Lama said, "You know, I've decided. I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell. There are more people there I can help." Come on. <laughs> I'm like looking at his picture right now and he's laughing. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go to hell. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's why they're just on yeah. a whole other dimension. Right, exactly. But, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, it is easy with these stories to just say, here are these superhuman people and, you know, you got to meditate, you know, six hours a day or, you know, um, in order to you know, develop this kind of orientation. You know, and Archbishop Tito was teasing the Dalai Lama that he meditates too much, you know, like six hours is really too much. Um, but the the thing that you saw in this week of them together, and you probably picked up in the Book of Joy, is that actually they are human. Mm-hmm. They Their friendship is this wonderful model of what's possible for all of us, 
right? It might not be quite as sparkling, quite as illuminated and, you know, as, uh, as kind of spiritually enlightened, but, you know, they all, you know, there, we're all as, as Archbishop Tutu said, where it takes time to learn to be human. We're all on the path. And, you know, I, there's this one amazing, um, time when I was interviewing Archbishop Tutu and, and he was about around forgiveness and he had made the decision to go back to South Africa with his family from England, where they were free and equal citizens. And then they had to go back to South Africa where they were second-class citizens and it meant breaking up their family because they couldn't get a, a real education for their, for their children because they were black. And his wife didn't want to go. And he... Um, was being called back by the church to kind of come lead the resistance. And he explained that this almost broke up their marriage. And I asked him and I said, you know, have you ever asked Mama Leia for, for, you know, for forgiveness? And at first, you know, he was kind of like, you know, he was like, you know. Just a man? <laughs> first he was just a man and he was like, you know, a man in his 80s and he's like, well, it was the right thing to do and, you know, I, you know, had to make the choice and, you know, like, you I'm know. the leader of the pack. You know, I had to make a decision. You know, and, 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 um, and you could see, I mean, this was this, um, this amazing moment where you could see him getting reactive like we all do. And then he paused for this moment. Right. You could just see that little pause that sometimes meditation or prayer gives us that between reactivity and response. And he paused. And he said, I'll ask her. And several weeks later, after the, you know, he wrote to me and he said um, that he had asked Mama Leia uh, and she had said that she had forgiven him. Wow. So we're, you know, <laughs> marriage makes us all human. Yeah. Um, and, um, and in the end, we are all human. And the Dalai Lama will tell you he's just, you know, uh, another simple monk. And, you know, we sometimes we you know, touch these moments of extraordinary integration. And sometimes we fall into brain disintegration. Yeah. Um, and through stress or anxiety or our triggers, as you were saying, from our childhood. But, you know, the, the, the path is the same for all of us. Yeah. It's just so interesting to see that he hadn't even considered it. Yeah. He hadn't thought of it because I think what we all do is our inner circle bears the brunt of everything so that we can be everything to everyone else. Right. And he didn't even realize right you kind of hit him yeah with that one uh well i have about a thousand questions i haven't even gotten to 